0: Case S-02, E-07, Slow burn Shakespeare, Part 5 of 6, The Wings Wherewith We Fly. In the last four episodes, we've covered a lot of ground. The arrival of the Shakespeare question, its very frosty reception in certain spheres, the difficulties of working with the data, and we've covered five proposed theories for who actually wrote Shakespeare. These theories included The Cutout, seven Shakespeare's in a trench coat hammering out classics in the dead of night. Except maybe not seven, maybe six, maybe eight, or whatever. And maybe not in a trench coat, maybe in a smoking jacket, I don't know. But definitely, possibly in the dead of night. Anyway, when the conspiracy of Shakespeare's fell out of grace, we moved on to one-man theories, starting with The Cipher, a cryptic plot of marvellously secreted messages littered through Shakespeare's works and tributes, breadcrumbs for the learned reader to find, so that they could ultimately deduce that the identity of the true Shakespeare is Sir Francis Bacon. But this rapidly deteriorated into Bacon being the long-lost heir to the Tudor throne, and things got even weirder after that. So we moved on to the one I called the monster, which I'm sure has pleased a lot of people to no end. Edward de Vere, generally awful aristocrat and creator of, so it seems, absolutely no compelling evidence whatsoever. After he had disappointed pretty much everyone in pretty much everything, he cleared the stage to make way for my personal favourite, poet, spy, man about town who possibly faked his own death as theatrically as anything he ever wrote for stage, Christopher Marlowe. But... As fun as Marlowe was, we had just one more candidate. Another aristocrat, yes. But he did actually have something going for him that the other nobles didn't. He wasn't just an empty bundle of inherited titles. He was also an adventurer. Probably fighting tigers was less precarious than occupying a position just a bit too close to the Elizabethan throne. And his name was William Stanley. It's important to note here, though, that honestly, as I said right back at the very beginning of the first episode, I have barely scratched the surface of this whole debate. Sometimes I've given you arguments and rebuttals, but I haven't given you the rebuttals to the rebuttals or the rebuttals to those either, because honestly, we would just be here forever. This debate has been raging for hundreds of years, and countless people have written Thousands of publications on it. The four individual people I've looked at are not the only candidates who have been put forward. You might again remember from the very first episode in this mini series that at least 80 names have been suggested by this point. If you want to look up more stories of other possible Shakespeares, then take a look at Sir Walter Raleigh, Sir Henry Neville, Mary Sidney, the Countess of Pembroke and Emilia Bassano, the daughter of Venetian merchants. Each of these is an interesting story in its own right, but like I said, this podcast series would just become 10 times longer than it already is, and we have to move on. In this episode now, we move directly into my particular wheelhouse. On the one hand, computers assisting us in our analysis of language, and on the other, forensic linguistics. Or, well, yeah, okay, I mean, I guess we'll get there. I'll try not to cry too much as that particular chapter unfolds. Welcome to OnClaire, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements and links to further reading, at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this podcast. In 1991, the Shakespeare Clinic of Claremont Colleges published an article. In it, they claim that none of the long list of alleged authors, Marlowe, Bacon, De Vere, Raleigh and so on, none of them could have written the Shakespeare Canon. They also argue, in turn, that Shakespeare could not have written any of their writings. That, by the way, is yet another side theory, that lots of the works of, say, Bacon and De Vere and Raleigh were, in fact, penned by Shakespeare. And, of course, the converse theory has also been put forward, that, say, Bacon wrote many of the works attributed to De Vere and Neville and so on and so forth. The rabbit hole just goes Forever downwards, as you can imagine. Anyway, back to the Shakespeare Clinic of Claremont Colleges. Much of their research was done using computer based quantitative methods, and their declaration was based on modal and conventional tests. According to their results, Walter Raleigh was the closest match to Shakespeare based on modal testing, but this only gave him a 2% chance of being the author. Bacon, Marlowe and De Vere, the three usual main candidates for authorship, were all far more distant from the Shakespeare writings. According to these findings, Shakespeare's poems have a very few strong characteristic modes that are reflected in all of his works, whereas many blocks of other authors' works do not replicate this. So, parts of the study looked at the use of compound words and open and feminine endings, and found them far more frequently in the Shakespeare canon than in the work of his contemporaries, whilst relative clauses were less frequent. And these patterns were found to be almost entirely consistent throughout the work. Of course, there must always be a response from the other side, one of those rebuttals I've talked about, and in particular Oxfordia, the supporters of de Vere, argued that the dissimilarities between De Vere and Shakespeare were just developmental. But for those of you capable of keeping a billion facts in your brain throughout this whole miniseries, might remember that this would then immediately clash with their other argument that the Shakespeare canon was actually written 20 years earlier than is now the common belief. That is, if you remember how they account for De Vere writing it to make the chronology fit. So De Vere has died, but he's pre-written a whole bunch of stuff and some of it's finished and it continues to be released after his death. It's all back in the third part if you want to go listen again. Anyway, in short, the Clermont view was that if it was improbable that a Glover's son wrote the works, it was even more improbable still that the likes of De Vere had written them. But interestingly, the Cleveland Clinic had a direct run-in with none other than Donald Foster. Foster's name has already come up in another episode, S01 E03, Belle de Jour, but I will briefly recap him here. Donald Foster was a professor of English at New York's Vassar College and for much of his career he used a technique known as stylometry to look at drumroll, Shakespearean authorship. That was basically his specialism. Notably, though, he sometimes applied similar techniques to high-profile modern data, including criminal investigations. He essentially took on something that might be vaguely called forensic linguistics. And that hasn't always turned out quite so well. In 1996, he had what looks on the surface to be a success with identifying the author of an anonymous novel entitled Primary Colours. This was about Bill Clinton's first presidential campaign in 1992. But, as always seems to happen, there are large grey areas in this case. Also in 1996, Foster was involved in the Unabomber case. I'm actually going to do a full miniseries on that eventually, so I won't say any more here. In 1997, he was part of the Jean-Benet Ramsey murder case, but again, I'll discuss that in a future podcast. The problem here is that Foster is said to have seriously compromised his position as an expert witness in the case, and he is finally dismissed by the district attorney, rendering his expert report on the key piece of evidence, a ransom note, useless. Four years later, Foster advises the FBI on the case of the 2001 anthrax attacks and writes a piece for Vanity Fair linking government scientist and bioweapons expert Dr. Stephen Hatfill with the attacks. Now try to remember this bioweapons bit because it does come up again in a few minutes in quite an awkward way. Anyway, back to the tiny tangent. Unfortunately, the culprit is someone else. You will find out who in the proper episode, and Dr. Hatfill pursues substantial legal action against a list of individuals and organisations. This includes no less than the US Attorney General, Condé Nast Publications, Vassar College, and Donald Foster. Several of these cases, including Foster's, result in out-of-court settlements. The Justice Department in particular agreed to pay Dr Hatfield nearly $3 million in cash and a two-decade-long annuity of $150,000 per annum. That's a pretty big apology. Finally, in the Enclair episode I've so far done on him, in 2004, the Times newspaper ran a story in which Foster identified someone as the author of the anonymous Belle de Jeux blog, but it turned out to be the wrong person. Anyway, you get the idea. Another thing I've mentioned in passing in this miniseries but now need to bring in properly is the existence of something known as the Shakespeare Apocrypha. So the Apocrypha is almost exactly the opposite of the canon. The works in the canon are all of the titles that most Stratfordians agree were penned by Shakespeare, sometimes there's the two extra ones on top, but That leaves a little mess of plays and poems where there are hotter debates and less definitive answers. Some of them have initials on, like W.S. Some of them match the style but have no name on them. Some of them are now-discovered hoaxes and forgeries. Some were attributed to Shakespeare at first, but then the first folio didn't include them, so everyone dropped them like hot potatoes. The current apocryphal list generally consists of The Passionate Pilgrim, A Lover's Complaint, To the Queen, Shall I Die, A Bundle of Epitaphs, and The Funeral Elegy, sometimes abbreviated to just Elegy, a poem that comes up again for the next short while. Anyway, the apocrypha is itself a living authorship question. Who wrote these works? Were some of them written by Shakespeare? but it's subtly different to the one we've been looking at so far. Rather than, say, trying to remove Shakespeare's name from something in the canon that has been long attributed to him, like, say, Macbeth, and put someone else's name on it, like, you know, Christopher Marlowe, the arguments around the Apocrypha tend to be, did Shakespeare write this? Or, in other words, should this be part of the Shakespeare canon? It's all authorship, yes, and you might think that the stakes around these fringe cases would be lower, but you'd be wrong, or perhaps because the stakes are so low, the fighting is so intense. Anyway, imagine the feverish desire to discover a long-lost work of Shakespeare. Just think how that would play out in the media. We have examples of this happening when people attribute new works and new plays to Shakespeare in the sort of flurry of headlines that pops up around it. And I sort of gave you that weird black mirror case in the earlier episodes of what would happen if you discredited Shakespeare. So for the scholar themselves, it would be a career jackpot. It would make their name in the field forever. So if you think people are passionate about stopping works from being dragged out of the canon, they're perhaps even more fiercely territorial about new works being added in. The fights between those striving to add a new work and those outright rejecting the idea of anything ever being added ever again have been spectacular. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to the point. Donald Foster was this Shakespearean authorship analyst. That was his primary field of research, and he sort of digressed from that into forensic linguistics. And he has looked at some of the apocrypha, and he's very unsurprisingly taken an interest in the work of the Claremont College's students. The students, too, have been analysing some of the apocryphal poetry. In their own words, Foster is now famous for his Shakespeare ascription of a poem, Elegy, that's the funeral elegy I mentioned, by W.S., discovered in the Bodleian Library, Oxford. Foster thought our efforts to shorten the Shakespeare claimant list were misconceived and embarrassing, since no Shakespeare professional considered any non Stratfordian claim open to rational examination or debate. Again, there's that gatekeeping I mentioned. Anyway, if I understand this quote correctly, Foster is presented as arguing that the only valid question is ascribing things to Shakespeare, not removing ascriptions from Shakespeare already made by, well, people like him. So, suggesting alternative possible candidates is just ridiculous and time spent on the question is time wasted. Anyway, back to Claremont. In 1996, when we were about to publish evidence contrary to his elegy ascription, he became our most implacable critic and censor. Now, that's a pretty harsh claim, so what did this criticism look like? Well, when the Claremont Colleges went to publish their paper entitled A Funeral Elegy and Other Controversies in 1996, after a long delay, it finally appeared in 1997. I apologise in advance for the ableist language I'm about to repeat, but according to Claremont, Their article was repackaged, apparently without their knowledge, as a debate and with a sweeping, scathing denunciation of it by our old ally, Donald Foster. Foster, by that time, had concluded that the funeral elegy was Shakespeare's beyond all reasonable doubt and gotten it accepted as possibly Shakespeare's, in all three new American editions of Shakespeare's complete works. He no longer took kindly to our evidence to the contrary, but dismissed it categorically as idiocy, madness, and foul vapour. Now, as usual with these kinds of claims, I went looking for the original source that supposedly contained these words. I wanted to quote it verbatim, but I couldn't find it. Instead, I found the 1998 rebuttal by Foster actually discussing those very words. The whole thing is a mess. He says he never used the word, apologies for the ableist language again, that he never used the word idiocy, and, you know, for what it's worth, that is a pretty extraordinary thing for someone to say. I mean, it's happened. Linguists can be really a lot. Even academics, or maybe especially academics have been outstandingly rude to each other over the years over the centuries even so just because it's remarkable doesn't mean it's impossible but foster does accept that he used the phrase foul vapor and then says it's been taken out of context mm, okay in that very same rebuttal foster doesn't come off at all wonderfully anyway just one quote from him should do but there's a link to the whole thing if you want to read it He writes, As a reluctant witness to massive sloppiness in the Claremont project, and having been rebuffed in every effort to steer Elliot and Valenza – those are the two main Claremont people – to steer Elliot and Valenza in more rational directions, I came to view the Shakespeare Clinic long ago as a fiasco. You know, I feel like Judge Judy here. Claremont students say this, Foster says that, the mud is flying, everyone looks bad. I mean, who do you believe? So let's just get back to the poem. In whatever precise terms, polite or pointed, Foster had confidently ascribed this apocryphal funeral elegy to Shakespeare and thoroughly reigned on the parade of these students who questioned his conclusion. The Clermont students acknowledged that they had really only looked at Elegy in passing, so they revisited it in much more detail. Unlike a few other shorter poems, this one was long enough to be subjected to several more of their tests, and, according to them, of the 36 valid Shakespeare tests it was long enough to handle, "'It flunks 24 of them, 17 of them by a wide margin.' and, in our view, should not be ascribed to Shakespeare at all. We don't see a scholarly consensus yet on F.E. Funeral elegy. American editors still seem to think it could be Shakespeare's. British do not. But hardly anyone besides Donald Foster thought it was Shakespeare's when we began in 1987, so our general proposition stands. How does this messy little subplot end? Well, when Foster originally attributed Funeral Elegy to Shakespeare, plenty of newspapers like the New York Times were very excited about it. As I said, you can just imagine it, a new work of Shakespeare, linguistic sleuthing. It's very James Bond meets Indiana Jones, but in a library, quietly, with like silences and stuff. Indiana Bond and the Quantum of Sonnets. Anyway, you can imagine the excitement, like when someone goes on cash in the attic and discovers that the old violin in Granny's bungalow is an immaculate Stradivarius. People get really emotionally invested in this kind of stuff. But however excited the media, or the public, other scholars did not share that same enthusiasm. Gilles Montserrat, Montserrat, I'm really sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, and Brian Vickers, and Vickers will again come up later, so remember him if you can. So Montserrat and Vickers both undertake analyses of this poem, Elegy, and those analyses both reach similar conclusions. Montserrat and Vickers publish their results in articles and books, and in June 2002, Foster writes the following response on the Shakespeare mailing list. Quick note, I have trimmed loads of this for brevity. It was very long. You can find the link to the original on the blog. So, Foster replies thus. In 1996, having ventured an attribution of W.S.'s A Funeral Elegy to Shakespeare, I was blasted in the pages of the TLS Times Literary Supplement. But Shakespeare's authorship was not as easily disproved as some sceptics anticipated. Though several alternative attributions were advanced, they failed for a good reason. They were mistakes. Recently, though, the French scholar G.D. Montserrat may have succeeded where English and American scholars have failed, demonstrating in an article in the Review of English Studies that the elegy looks like the work of the Jacobean dramatist, John Ford. I know good evidence when I see it and I predict that Montserrat will carry the day. Years ago, when Ford was first mentioned as a possible author, I scoffed at the attribution. Montserrat's hypothesis that Ford was employed as a ghostwriter for W.S. seems, to me, implausible for several reasons, but I have no better solution to offer. Since 1997, I have had a second career in criminology and forensic linguistics. My experience in recent years with police detectives, FBI agents, lawyers and juries has, I hope, made me a better scholar. Our courts have long exacted higher standards for the admissibility of evidence than literary journals. My experience with the anonymous documents in criminal investigations indicates that competent and trusted people – math professors, parents, bio experts – often commit acts or write texts that you wouldn't expect of them. Ooh, awkward. Anyway. Personal opinions cannot stand for evidence, nor can personal rhetoric. But in light of the evidence marshaled by Montserrat and possibly augmented by Brian Vickers' forthcoming book, the jury need not hold forth much longer on Shakespeare's authorship of A Funeral Elegy. The kinds of linguistic and intertextual evidence I myself most trust, and that informs Montserrat's essay, associate W.S. more strongly with Ford than with Shakespeare. In short, after denouncing the Clermont students' claims about the elegy in whatever language he used, I don't know, Foster himself then also had to concede to Montserrat, Vickers and everyone else that, well, yeah, maybe Shakespeare didn't write the poem after all. It's a useful reminder that no matter how high we get, it's always best to speak softly, For the words we utter today may be the ones we eat tomorrow. At this point, we've considered a ton of evidence, some stronger, some kind of dubious, that disputes the authorship of the Shakespeare canon. Plenty that jumps right past the primary assumption that Shakespeare did not write his own works and moves straight on to positing someone else. But in a mini series like this, there's an important inverse question that we really do need to ask what about evidence that supports the argument that Shakespeare really did exist and that he really did write his own canon? Evidence that suggests that the Glover son actually was the real deal? As I have said so many times by now, lots of Shakespearean scholars generally see no reason to doubt the authorship of the canon, and that would be for a very simple reason. There really is quite a lot of evidence pointing towards the Shakespeare of Stratford being the author, but it's good to look over some of the specific claims one by one, especially those fairly robust counter arguments for a majority of the points made by the Antes. So let's go way, way back to some of the very first contentions we covered, and for no especially good reason, we'll just start with the many ways he spelled his name, okay. So in the Elizabethan period, spelling actually wasn't standardised and variations even in one's own name was perfectly normal. I actually touched on that when I mentioned the many varieties of Shakespeare's plays that exist. Spelling a surname like Shakespeare in six different ways really didn't mean that much. Also, some of the differences in his name can simply be put down to breviographs. This is a shorthand method for writing a common cluster of letters, so think of Xmas, for instance. The X is a breviograph for Christ. Another issue with the general anti-arguments is that quite often they are working on the absence of evidence. The missing school records are interpreted as him possibly not having much or any schooling at all. The will Failing to directly mention his works and the theatre is taken to suggest that he didn't have anything to do with them, the lost seven years are seen as evidence that he wasn't writing, and so on. And when you think about that, it's actually a fairly silly position, for actually quite a few reasons. In fact, it's an outright rhetorical fallacy with a fancy Latin name, argumentum ex silentio. I recommend a swish and flick of the wand as you perform that particular curse. Anyway, back to the supposedly missing evidence. For a start, it is extremely normal for the time to not know much about the biography of playwrights. I mean, I already mentioned this anyway. We just didn't keep such great records back then. Why would we? Paper-based, handwritten records are expensive to make, laborious to fill in, hard to constantly organise, a pain in the backside to search. They take up huge amounts of space after a while and they're massive hazards for pests, mould and fires. And what would be the point? I mean, no one's thinking 500 years into the future when someone like me is trying to stitch together a middle-aged man's whole life from scraps of illegible parchment. So the lack of the records is just not weird nor is it evidence of really anything other than how logistically and bureaucratically difficult it was to keep records in a pre-computer era students of computing i apologize for that remark because i actually do have some insight into how difficult it is to store massive databases of sensibly organized digitized records let's move on and leave you to your grief and remember too that we know more about shakespeare than we do about most other elizabethan playwrights so is it possible that he didn't go to the grammar school? I mean, sure, of course, but, as it is now, historically, education was seen as synonymous with class and consequence. It's difficult to imagine that his father, a high-ranking civic official, would have quixotically denied his son those very hallmarks of importance that would reflect back on himself. Later on, indeed, Shakespeare would work hard to have his father recognised as a gentleman, an actual title with material consequence in those days. Evidence, then, that issues of class and rank mattered in Shakespeare's family. There are other hints, too, that he did attend the grammar school. In his work, Shakespeare actually makes allusions to texts and to teaching methods commonly used in grammar schools at the time. He mocks schoolmasters. But, at the same time, remember what I said about this type of evidence. Shakespeare was renowned precisely because he created convincing characters, because he became someone else other than himself in the process of writing. So, using the works as though they are biographical is very problematic. I can't wrap the antis on the knuckle for it and then just do it myself like it's all fine. So, there are hints, but you can't lean on them too hard. Anyway, there's more to counter the antis. Scholars have pointed out that the contemporaries of Shakespeare, such as Marlowe and Johnson, came from similarly modest families, but supposedly nobody questions their authorship on that basis. Actually, people do question their authorship, and I've alluded to it multiple times now, including just at the start of the Claremont subsaga, but to characterise it more fairly, there hasn't been as much enthusiastic, impassioned aggressive dedication to challenging their authorship and even when it does happen it's usually bundled up as part of the Shakespeare question anyway. And there's still more. Like I already said as far as we can tell there were also no public claims during Shakespeare's lifetime that he was merely a pseudonym. No one ever pointed out that Shakespeare and Bacon never appeared in the same room at the same time. You remember the Batman principle, where Shakespeare, the hero, the gothic needed, but didn't deserve? That was obviously a joke, not a coded message. Please do not dig up your local pond on the back of it. Anyway, what about those lofty, inaccessible themes? Royalty, courts, politics, law, medicine, science. All that stuff that Shakespeare supposedly couldn't have known about or experienced for himself. Well, I mean, he could learn as he went. And I'm also pretty sure that he could probably just, you know, hold a conversation. It wasn't impossible for him to talk to people who did have these experiences, maybe to even get experts or quasi-experts in those fields to vet his early drafts and correct any screaming errors. I mean, just one example of this is when his daughter married Dr John Hall, a physician. After that, more medical references were made in the works. For his courtly information, he could easily have spoken to wealthier patrons and friends. Plenty of these were minor nobles, they were in his general acquaintance, and I'm sure at least some of them would have loved to instruct Shakespeare on the finer points of propriety. Even royalty love gossip. And, once his plays started to become popular, he did then go on to perform in royal courts and for the aristocracy, which would have given him yet more insight still. And many of his plays were based on pre-existing stories. He could have learned any amount from his own exposure to the works of others. Added to this, many episodes ago, I did mention that none of the ordinary watchers of his plays would have been able to hop on the internet to fact-check his work. Had they, they might have spotted quite a litany of anachronistic and geographical and classical gaffes, As befits a man who probably hasn't travelled the globe and isn't some sort of unparalleled repository of world knowledge, the canon contains any number of errors and they are great. So Shakespeare gifts the ancient Romans with mechanical clocks and billiards. Okay, I can understand billiards, it's just balls and sticks, but mechanical clocks, that's amazing. He gives Bohemia a coast, He gives Elsinore cliffs. He describes a ship journey between two cities that are next door to each other in the middle of a country. No ship needed. And so forth. He makes other goofs besides, including not knowing how many classical names would scan and therefore screwing up their placement in verse. In fact, in these very errors we have a tenuous link between Shakespeare and the grammar school that he supposedly might never have attended. One John Brechgirdle donated a copy of Thesaurus Linguae Romana et Britannica by Thomas Cooper to Stratford Grammar, that would have been the school he would have attended, and this book contains several errors. Some of these very same errors Appear in Shakespeare's plays. Now, obviously, Shakespeare could have gotten a copy of this very same book from somewhere else. It could just be a coincidence. But the point is, this directly contradicts the bardolatrous idea that Shakespeare was an implacable, godlike intellect who simply could not be a mere glover's son. Instead, it rather supports the idea that he was a very gifted, but otherwise ordinary mortal who could indeed have been born in a market town in possession of an unusually vivid flair for character-building and drama. And besides all of this, we have so much evidence from the time that a dramatically-oriented William Shakespeare existed, and that this Shakespeare, all over the theatre records and title pages, probably was the same one as the Stratford Glover's son. There is explicit testimony from actors he worked with, direct attributions by his contemporaries soon after his death, paintings, statues, elegies in celebration of his works and life within a few short years of his passing. If that's a conspiracy, that's amazing. Unfortunately, far too many of the theories from the Antis don't really bother to address all this evidence first. I mean, after all, if you're going to propose your own king, you have to take the crown from the current monarch first. And plenty of the theories simply walk right past all this rather inconvenient documentary record as if it doesn't exist. Or worse, they dismiss it all as a gigantic hoax. The problem is, if you're willing to dismiss as a hoax some of the documentary historical evidence, then how is it that the same claim can't be made about other evidence that supports some of the ante's arguments? Of course, in some sort of fantastic alternative reality, literally every bit of this evidence could have been planted and all historical records carefully modified to cover up the necessary insertions and deletions. But realistically, this is just not probable. It would have been an operation to tax the highest levels of GCHQ, the NSA and all the other shady abbreviations even today. I mean, when would it have been done? By whom? What for? And the always important question, qui bono? Who benefits from such an expensive, elaborate, determined conspiracy? The cost-benefit analysis alone suggests that the only way this would happen would be if something about the person, or people, behind Shakespeare could have the power to potentially dethrone the reigning monarch or destabilise the government, or something in that apocalyptic vein. Again, possible? Sure. Great fiction? Absolutely, I would read that book all day. Plausible? Likely? Probable? Not really. And I feel reasonably confident answering in that way because of a principle I've mentioned several times now. Occam's Razor. This is the notion that, statistically, logically, universally, the simplest explanation is most likely to be the correct one. This is purely because the simpler events are statistically more likely to successfully happen versus the more complex ones. If the events are more complex, there are more things that can more easily go wrong. And in this case, the simplest theory, with by far the most evidence already in its favour, is that William Shakespeare, the Stratford Glover's son, is indeed the author of the works attributed to him. So, that's it, right? We've answered the authorship question, haven't we? That's the end of the story, right? Not quite. In all of this, I have been delicately tiptoeing around, and sometimes stepping directly in, but not properly acknowledging, a really obvious issue. This might actually have been driving some of you mad, but hopefully this deals with it now. The idea that Shakespeare independently wrote every word of every play and every poem with no creative input from anyone, like some sort of feverish, solitary genius, is arguably as extreme as the idea that he wrote none of the works ascribed to him. For what it's worth, personally, I don't think either position is the truth. As with so much in life, I suspect that the answer is somewhere in the middle. And in that middle, we have collaboration in all its guises. Collaboration was and is a common practice, especially among groups of artists and creatives working closely together on one or more projects. Innumerable films and TV shows have not just a few, but large teams of script writers. Some will pen individual characters or certain scenes. Some will work on entire episodes. Some will organise meta-level narrative arcs. Others will be responsible purely for the jokes or the arguments or the clever insinuations. But all will hopefully weave together into a seamless tapestry of dialogue and description. And remember, I've already mentioned that actors, too, sometimes have their input, suggesting that certain lines might work better if modified in some way. Even historical financial records back up this normality. Philip Henslow, an Elizabethan theatre impresario, has regular records of payments to teams of writers, including on the play Sir Thomas More, with its team of five authors and revisers amongst those revisers? Shakespeare. And when time pressures were mounting, work could even be subcontracted out to jobbing writers. It's like the Elizabethan Fiverr or Amazon Turk of its day. In other words, disentangling quite who authored which word afterwards could be even messier than this whole miniseries has been so far. And to press, it's been really long already. So it's time at long last to step into the near present, 2016, and the sudden, surprising new turn of events in the never-ending drama that is the Shakespeare authorship question. End of part five of six. If you're interested in more Shakespeare content from linguists at Lancaster, then search the internet for FutureLearn Shakespeare's Language. Those four words, FutureLearn Shakespeare's Language. This free online course is all about both revealing the meanings in the works and exploring the myths about Shakespeare in general. And as a bonus, you get introduced to corpus-based methods for analysing Shakespeare. What's not to love? This episode was researched and fact-checked by my research assistant, Rebecca Jagajinsky, and my intern, Debbie Tomkinson. And it was narrated and produced by me, Dr. Claire Hardacre. I am also extremely grateful for all the input I've had from the renowned Shakespeare authority, Professor Jonathan Culpepper, creator of that online course I mentioned, who has patiently entertained this whole miniseries idea from inception to gruesome bloody execution however this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many many others you can find acknowledgements and references at the blog also there you can find data links articles pictures older cases and more besides the address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac Dot uk forward/onclair and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore onclair or if you like you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Claire h